0: This is an Urbanarium City Talk, a podcast for city lovers. Episode 3 is Slow Streets, a conversation between the transportation departments of Vancouver and Oakland, moderated by Chris Volan, Urbanarium board member and development consultant. Chris brings together Paul Storer, Director of Transportation, City of Vancouver, and Warren Logan. Policy Director of Mobility and Interagency Relations at Oakland's Mayor Office to talk about municipal rapid responses to COVID. How have urban planners responded to the COVID-19 crisis on our streets and on our sidewalks? What worked? What was the feedback process? What was learned? And what do we get to keep? Let's begin.
1: If we can start with just a quick intro from from each of you, sort of what you've been responsible for, uh, and then probably just an overview of what the, which is hard to do in a few minutes, but the, what your each municipality's response has been to COVID, that'd be great. Warren, if we can start with you.
2: Sure. You know, thanks, Christopher, for having me. Uh, I normally serve as the Mayor's Policy Director of Mobility and Interagency Relations, and in that role, I work very closely with both our Department of Transportation to work sort of hand in glove, mayor's office, city administrators, DOT, to, you know, push for any kind of transportation policy, whether locally, for the county, or even at the regional level. In the case of COVID-19, I have a an emergency operations role that I am the Uh, community resilience director and as part of that for the beginning and sort of still to this day uh, I am our city's main point of contact for all the testing programs so we work very closely with the county that provides the testing services and I liaison between the county our real estate department and our um, city attorneys to make sure that all the paperwork is in order to get people testing. Uh, What I'm happy to talk about today of course is that I also help manage slow streets which is our residential traffic calming essential places, which is the sort of offshoot that we'll probably talk about later, uh, that helps people connect to, of course, as essential places, uh, and then flex streets, which is the business equivalent parklets, cafe seating, street closures for outdoor dining, outdoor merchant activity, uh, mobile food vending, etc. cetera.
0: Perfect,
3: thank you. Paul? Great, so I'm Paul Storer, uh, director of transportation uh, with the city of Vancouver. Um, And so we're kind of responsible for all of, we we kind of have three departments or divisions that are responsible for transportation within Vancouver. Uh, So we have a separate group that does um, kind of the infrastructure management. Uh, That's our streets group. And we have a different group that's um, responsible for public space and street use. but um, we all work closely together, particularly in terms of uh, pandemic response. So uh, transportation kind of does everything from planning uh, to uh, kind of design and engagement to managing parking to traffic operations. Um, and the pandemics, it, it well, it's been really interesting for everyone, I think, but... Um, you know, it it all happened when we were in a big period of transition. Our former director had just moved on to be city engineer, and we were um, we were kind of rotating through director roles until, um, in you know, until it was finally finally decided. And um, so, when the pandemic started, I was actually the manager of transportation design, um, responsible for kind of all of the transportation infrastructure projects in the city. Um, so it was. Um, it's it's been a really interesting journey as the pandemic has um, kind of continued, um, and we as an organization have continued to try to adapt to it.
1: And so, some similar initiatives, I think, between the two two cities or two regions. I think, uh, Warren, you speak to like slow streets, which certainly Vancouver has undertaken um central places uh, our, our pop-up plazas i think paul would that be a corollary to that i think and certainly in the flex streets and pop-up pop-up patios we've had can you can you both speak to what's one what was it like responding rapidly with kind of no budget assigned to things how did you make that happen and two what have people really loved what's what's worked in each of your each of your cities
2: i think Christopher, that what's interesting about the pandemic, and I, I would say any emergency, is that it <clears throat> it really brings out, I would hope, the best in people to really showcase, you know, their natural skill set, irrespective of, of whatever their job title might be. Uh, the first few days and weeks of COVID-19's, you know, shelter in place and response were hellish insofar as, you know, and like now what feels like probably a decade's worth of time. You know, there was so much we didn't know, we didn't understand you know, how long this was going to last, how viral it might be, things like that, right? So we were just kind of in this moment trying to do as much as we could too quickly. Uh, soon thereafter, you know, in the case of every emergency, our, you know, we declare a state of emergency and we set up effectively a shadow government called the Emergency Operations Center those normally only last a day or two for each emergency. But in the case of COVID, this is our longest running state of emergency I think we've ever had. So we have this whole team that's set up to rally around a number of specific initiatives, right? So instead of, and I think Paul, you'd kind of mentioned this in your introduction about some of the organizational structures, the different directors, et cetera, in Oakland, and I think a lot of other municipal agencies we have a series of objectives that have completely different directors, right? Like I'm not normally above the fire department, but for the operations team, in respect to community resilience, police, fire, economic and workforce development, and DOT are in my sphere of influence, let's say. And the reason I'm kind of starting here is that because we started with a set of principles and goals Right, instead of just ongoing programs that we have to shuffle out every couple of years, it really helped people understand what the priority was and to spell out like, this has to come before this. And I know that we used to do it that way, but now we have to do it this way. And so we were able to kind of melt or thaw that ice that I think a lot of public agents really understand of the like, intractability of the government, right? Like everyone just sort of had to set aside themselves to some degree and their original hats and say for, for however long we just need to act because for any engineer, for example, the no build scenario is, is not an option, right? Like you have to get off of the iceberg, I guess I'm mixing metaphors here. Um, So I would say exciting, but, but also really, really challenging was, were those first few Weeks, months, days, et cetera.
1: Paul, similar experience?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Very similar experience. And I think, you know, we had a couple of things happening. We had our EOC getting activated. And, um, you know, the struggle is at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there's so much going on and so many different priorities um, within Engineering and our transportation and streets and public space groups all all sit within our engineering department. We kind of took on that basket of initiatives outside of the EOC to give them kind of the space to be focusing on a bunch of other um, really important pieces. Um, that said, you know, the beginning of the pandemic, a lot was, oh, how do we how do we actually um, facilitate our staff working from home? <laughs> like that was, like. Like the amount of effort that just kind of went into oh how do we how do we be sure people have the computer equipment and setups and everything else to be working remotely um, you know took took a lot of effort but as we started um, as we started moving ahead and and really started seeing started thinking about what we could be doing to address the pandemic, started seeing what other cities were doing and honestly oakland was you know, one of the first out of the gate with some really bold, um, some really bold moves in terms of, of how to respond to the pandemic on on streets and for neighborhoods, um, we started, kind of taking, taking the opportunity to 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 learn from what other cities were doing and implementing things like our slow streets program. Um, you know, we have a bunch of work that we've been doing to support businesses around the city, including temporary patios and pop-up plazas. Um, you know, we have a, a room to move program that that mostly focused on some really busy areas um, of, you know, near our seawall for for walking and cycling and giving people that physical distancing, um, you know, and, and started responding to where we were really seeing problems, like particularly, you know, the more recent information we have is at least in vancouver we're not seeing kind of community spread we don't seem to be seeing a lot of community spread or maybe any outside on on sidewalks um and hopefully that doesn't change but um but you know at the beginning we were trying to create circumstances so that wherever possible people could be keeping those those uh, two meter clearances and we were seeing a lot of issues on our narrow sidewalks in particular, where people were queuing for grocery stores because, you know, there was really limited, uh, limited numbers of people allowed inside. So we had a room to queue program that kind of was our first thing out the door that, you know, created wider sidewalks in these, in these areas. Um, But yeah, I think it, 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 it's one of the most interesting things reflecting particularly on the first few months of the pandemic was just how much all the cities were, were learning from each other, right? Like looking at Oakland and San Francisco and, you know, a ton of cities um, around the world really who are looking at, at street space and how we can better use it to, to serve people during the, during the pandemic. Um, it's, been a, it's been an amazing experience. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it's
2: interesting that you shared, you know, that you're, sorry, Christopher, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned kind of looking towards those busier locations, because one of, I'll add, I suppose, is that one of the things that we thought about, like, from day, I don't want to say day one, day two, let's say, of our response to COVID was, where are the places that are either almost as if nothing has changed, right? Because for many people, shelter in place represents their uh, nearly everyday lived experience, right? Like they're already cut off from resources. They already don't have good transportation service, things like that, right? So we wanted to be certain that not only were we just like addressing those common sort of almost low hanging fruit issues of like, let's work with the business improvement districts because they're an easy vehicle to work with businesses. We actually sort of flipped that script and said, we already know the business improvement districts are going to have a, not a leg up, but they will be able to rally amongst themselves. We're already going to be hearing from them. So let's not proactively reach out as much as we think we should and instead spend our very limited bandwidth, right? And mental fortitude for that matter, trying to find neighborhoods, the residents, the merchants, business owners in these very, very hard to reach places. Because we know that if people are suffering as much as we all know, And we're not hearing from these places that statistically we're aware COVID is hitting the hardest. That means that we need to double our efforts in those areas, whether that be slow streets or flex streets or or you name it, right? But that has been a really seminal approach for pretty much all of Oakland's work for years now, but like, especially during COVID is focus on what are called our priority neighborhoods, but many would call communities of concern, low-income communities, people of color, the combination, because what we have also seen unsurprisingly out of this pandemic, both you know nationally, even in the state or even across the world, is that the people with the least always get stuck with the least, right? Or, or the most impact, right? And it's, it's not fair. And in fact, if we are able to streamline processes, if we're able to devote extra attention or, or any type of money that we might have, we need to be lifting up those people who are not just treading water, they're drowning. And that is a really, really hard place to make policy decisions from when everyone feels like they're drowning. And that's, that is a, that has been, I would say one of the more challenging aspects of the last eight months. I want to say is trying to explain to people that, that we are prioritizing others, even though they are also in pain.
3: Yeah, I think, um, no, that, that that's, that's uh, fantastic, and and I think with um, like with our programs, our Slow Streets program, um, you know, we rolled it out later than Oakland, and, and really learned a lot from you. Um, but but there we were really focused on uh, communities. What we were, you know, we we done a bunch of mapping on um, disproportionately impacted communities or communities of concern. And um, we, we had some good ideas about where we didn't have those transportation connections, um, where there weren't the, the better places for people to walk and cycle and access parks and things like that and really focused um, as much as possible on, on really starting in those communities. Um, in terms of the business response, um, it, yeah, it, 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 it's interesting because we, we kind of tried to do a combination of things and we did, um, you know, definitely, as you said, the business improvement associations, um, you know, have a have a stronger voice than, than a lot of other businesses, but um, they also have the ability to support moving a lot, a lot of things ahead at the same time, like they can kind of bring more uh, to the table Um, So being sure that we could kind of do a lot across the city um, while also focusing on, you know, particularly our hardest hit communities in Vancouver, that's the uh, downtown East side. And, um, you know, where we have a lot of our social services, it's the center of our uh, opioid crisis. And, um, and we were seeing like just massive, massive impacts there. Like, um, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of push, you know, our single room occupancy buildings were saying that the people living there could not guess. Um, so we were seeing um, big overdose issues because people were overdosing in their you know rooms with no one there. A lot of people were out on the streets, um, you know, physically out on the street where they would have had more um, support services beforehand. Um, so we were seeing, you know, the um, community services trying to serve people that would have had a place inside before, but now there wasn't anywhere. So we um, we were also focused on on working particularly with that community on on how do we create um, the outdoor spaces um, for people who don't have anywhere else to go, and um, and that's been one of the you know one of the biggest successes I think is um, really working with. With um, you know communities that have high addiction and high uh, homelessness um, issues, and, and really figuring out how to use that space um, on the street uh, for the people, and it's still like it's it's still really tough out there. But I think we, um, you know, I think some of these we've heard really positive things about these programs, and I think across the city. I'd, You know, I I think that is a weakness in terms of what we've done. I think there was a middle um, kind of between kind of some of the better supported businesses um, and the really, really struggling kind of community services that, um, you know, we probably could have um, supported more and hopefully, you know, down the line, we're able to support those,
1: um, those communities a lot more. So then for both of you, what, for the last 8 months and Paul that's probably a really good example what do these translate into as permanent solutions that we get to keep um, what has what has best served your each of your communities in these in these basically throwing solutions at the wall improvising doing something extremely quickly which to be blunt and as a non-city person isn't that normal for cities and it's really appreciated or at least I really appreciate it what in that process do we get to keep um yeah, it's
2: funny. A number of people have asked, and, and we just released uh, an interim report about a month or two ago about slow streets, and another one is coming out soon for flex streets. And what I've shared with people sort of confidently at the beginning of this process, and I, I'm going to keep saying it, is that what should be permanent is not necessarily what we did, but how we did it. So slow streets, for example, I think in, in many parts of Oakland have been incredibly successful in that they have encouraged people to run around with their kids, have dance-a-thons outside, you name it, right? And for other more more dangerous neighborhoods, I would even say in our priority neighborhoods, you may not see people playing out in the street, but those are also more statistically dangerous. And we have not seen then the the trends of traffic collisions on those streets that we normally would have by this time. I think that we should keep heading towards safe streets for everybody, right? Like that's that's sort of a paramount goal that I think everyone should strive for. I will acknowledge though, that if a year from now, we say, you know, A-frame barricades, type three barricades, this isn't really the, the look we're looking for with our city. Maybe we try and head towards planters or something else. All of that's fine. But I, I think what's really important, and Christopher you kind of embedded in your question is the way in which we are doing business now is more responsive, more engaging, more flexible, and, and perhaps most importantly, a willingness to fail. Fail quickly and, and address the mistakes. Whereas I think one of the things that governments do very, very well is insulate themselves from risk, right? Like the whole goal is to be as stable as possible, which means improvement, which is a change, right? Like any version of something moving off of this spot is is going to be pushed against because like you have a hill to climb to get there right like we we're always trying to maintain the ship no matter how stormy the seas right and that works for a lot of areas of the government it does not work for a lot of traffic safety issues right if someone calls me and says which happens nearly every day i feel unsafe on my street i want a response tomorrow i can't i i don't feel comfortable telling them that well you're a part of our capital improvement program. I can get to you in 10 years. Like that's, that's both insensitive and ridiculous. Um, when in fact, we found through slow streets, essential places, flex streets, that there are some ways that we can be incredibly nimble, flexible, w- work as a team in different departments and really meet the community's needs. That, that's, that's slow streets, right? For flex streets, the, and I'm, I'm curious, Paul, to kind of hear how you all set up your program because for cafe seating and parklets, those are automatic permits, which is like something no one even like really fully understands yet, right? Where you apply for the, for the permit online, we instruct you how to take a few photos with your camera phone, you draw a sketchy map on a napkin, you take a picture of that, you submit that to the department, and you are given an automatic permit with the like, I promise I'm gonna do what I said I said I would do. And for us to have permitted, what, 30, maybe 40 parklets. And we only had like three before. And that we've only really had like one challenge, right? Like only one of those parklets has been challenging really spells out that like, it's not that parklets should be made permanent. I mean, I think they should, but the process of how we got here should be more permanent, right? That that this flexibility, this trust that community members actually know what they need and that they know how to do what they're doing is what we need to maintain.
3: You, um, and if I can ask a question, are, are these part, like public parklets or are they patios supporting businesses? There? They're public parklets. So in the case of
2: Oakland, you know, we have, I'll kind of give you a range of where these parklets are situated. Uh, some are, you know, and on a traditional uh, commercial street, you just remove a parking spot, it's right up against a curb, you know. They are not public parklets. They They are privately owned, privately operated parklets. I'm gonna drop a pin in that because that's, that is an area that we have acknowledged is a temporary policy decision that we are going to need to revisit after COVID, right? Because normally parklets are for public use right? That, that sort of everyone and no, one's own, no one owns them. And that's always been a really tricky subject. I will admit, as I sit here today, that I would prefer perhaps that there be more private parklets than private parking spaces, right? I mean, public parking spaces are not really public parking spaces. They're used for private cars, right? Um, another place that we have parklets is... Um, on one of our streets that has a protected bikeway. And this is in fact where the hiccup has occurred. We didn't close the bikeway. We actually kept the protected bikeway and replaced the floating parking with parklets. And, you know, of the 20 that are on the street, let's say one of them was built incorrectly and there's this funky turn. And so people feel like they can't see people, you know, walking from the parklet to the sidewalk or bicycling, you know, but for that to be the only situation out of all of these parklets where we've just kind of said, "Go ahead we'll check we'll check on you later right tells me that our original parklet program was not meeting some of our goals of transforming public space to be more engaging and um, more pedestrian focused
3: I think the the um quick parklet implementation that's really interesting we've we've had a a huge amount of success with uh temporary patios like we've had like normally i forget how many patios we issue a year but we've had over 400 um temporary patios um in vancouver and our process went as you said our process went from like months like it would be months between applying and going through a process and finally getting approval uh, to um, us, guaranteeing and, and hitting a forty-eight-hour turnaround for almost all of them, and we had a bit more process around insurance and things like that. But I think, like, I think, it's the thing that Vancouverites have um, noticed the most and has made, in ways, the biggest impact. Like they're not public, but um, they add so much to our streets in terms of the environment. You know, getting rid of the parked cars with with this animated space. So it just makes um it, it's really transformed uh the city in a in a huge way. And we did like we did a survey recently kind of about all of the programs and we've kind of dug into the individual ones. I've never seen survey results like what we saw in this one. Like we overall we had about 90% support uh, yeah. across the city for the things we were doing and and that's n- I've never seen anything like that in 15
2: Well, isn't that the funny thing though, right? That like, we're finally, and this is where my staff have really shined through this is that people feel like they're finally, like finally helping somebody, you know, instead of like, oh, we're going to get to it when we get to it, right? Like that someone says I need help and then we help them. And that (laughs) the connection there has been far clearer, especially like, you know, I started timing how long it took to get like a, parklet and the the most amount of time from someone texting me and saying what's this about the flex streets program to them sending me a photo of a complete parklet was 34 days and normally i can't get emails responded that quickly so that to me is a win right um i hope that we get to keep some of these parklets because i've been making a pretty public campaign about getting rid of on-street parking spaces so you know, which would I rather, I guess I would prefer the parklets. I think the challenge, though, that we're all going to need to revisit, and Paul, you had mentioned this a bit earlier as well, is what then happens for people who don't traditionally have access to these sort of pseudo private public spaces, right? Like, what do we say to the homeless person that wants to sit at a bench in a parklet, right? It is now a private space. So who's responsible then for sort of either literally or figuratively policing this space and what other kinds of conflicts do we run into? You know, and and I think that that's a consequence that or challenges I should, I should at least say that we're going to need to wrestle with and, and are continuing to wrestle with right now. It is pouring rain in Oakland right now. Thank you. And all I can think about is the number of people who live outdoors that are soaking wet right now. What can we do for them just as quickly as we did for residents in Oakland who have homes or for businesses, right? And that's that's going to be, and I think this brings us full circle to your point or your question, Christopher, is like, we did this for this tranche of people. Can we use that same energy for uh,
1: other more mar- you know marginalized folks exactly, and as we move into the fall, we're, we're having probably similar weather here, at Warren. We've got major windstorms coming. We have a large uh, homeless population. So, question for both of you again: Lessons learned. We're going into a, a massive second wave in both jurisdictions. The process I'm hearing is 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 has been absolutely key, and I think it's been the responsiveness of of the, of the municipalities in both of these instances is really impressive, particularly for someone who's not in the municipal world who deals on the outside trying to get approvals. She's not missing anything. I love well, but I love that things are happening quickly. So what what's in store for us for the fall? What do the lessons of the last 8-9 months teach us that we can move forward with as we, we as we get hit again both by winter and the second wave? Well, Christopher, you know what's funny is that when you emailed us
2: and asked our Is California, you know, shutting down again? Just yesterday, the governor announced that 41 of the 57, 50 counties in, uh, which is really all the major counties in California, are returning to the first tier or like the purple tier of our, you know, tiered opening system. So Oakland and by extension Alameda County, where we're situated, uh, was actually doing pretty well. And everybody got reset back to like, don't go outdoors, like you can't touch anything. And a lot of folks, you know, called our office, emailed, you know, even staff shared some feedback to say, like, "Oh, now we got to start over." And I, I don't think that that's true because, and this is kind of looking towards the fall, the winter, and then probably the second year of COVID, knowing where our country is headed, um, is that we have been breadcrumbing our way through this the whole way, so that we can look backwards and say, how did I get here, right? Like what were those interim lessons learned so that then apparently the second time around, we won't make the same mistakes again. We will already have built a machine more engaged, more connected, more nimble, more flexible so that we can respond better. Like, and maybe it's not faster because I feel like, you know, setting up a slow use program in 72 hours is pretty quick. But the fact that we are now that we kind of know what's coming again means that we can, like, be better at our jobs, be more responsive, and I and I would hope, you know, working for the mayor's office, right, like that we can telegraph both a sense of pride, but also a sense of like um, calm and and resilience throughout, like what is going to be a, another very stressful fer- period for people.
1: Paul.
3: Yeah, I think um, again we've been learning a lot over the last. It feels like years. Um, yeah. yeah, there is, eight months. Um, but um, yeah, I think you know we've we've been kind of. It feels like we've been running headlong uh, the whole time. Um, we're gonna continue to. A lot of what we need to do is go back and improve some of the things uh, that we've already done. Like when I. When I look at the social service parklets um, you know looking at how we can weather protect some of those again for the the people experiencing homelessness who who really need some spaces to stay dry um, you know looking at our slow streets program and and uh, kind of going beyond what's out there and really you know getting into more traffic calming and and really reducing the number of vehicles on the streets we've um, we've started that and and I think again as you said being really um, willing to fail like our first two that we rolled out our first two big traffic calming moves we're pulling one back out um, because we want to we want to do the easy ones right like we want to go in and make a change to a bunch of streets you know make a big difference and then some of those streets they'll fail they were probably good ideas but they might have needed more engagement um, so you know, try to get a lot of things on the ground and try to uh, kind of learn from uh, learn from what's happened so far and, and continue to, you know as Warren, as you said, um, continue to learn that it's it's good to get things out there. It's good to try things out. Um, communities seem um, have seemed to respond really, really well to, Hey, let's try some things out and then let's be responsive to those communities and, and what's working and what isn't. Uh, and continuing to have that dialogue as we do things instead of, you know, the traditional process, which is let's do all the dialogue in the beginning and then we'll do something. Right. And I think continuing to demonstrate that we're, um, you know, we're trying to make improvements, that we're going to fail, that we're going to listen to communities and we're going to adjust things as needed. Um, That's a a very different way of doing business for us. And I think um, that is one of the, one of the biggest learnings coming out of this is that there's some big opportunities to make, you know, really big differences in people's lives um, by taking that approach.
2: Paul, you know, what's funny though, is that I just listening, you talk about like, Oh, you know, we've been making some failures now. It's like for many of the people I've spoken to, like, they've never experienced success from like, from their perspective that, that we've actually always been failing in their eyes. And so to <laughs> some degree, what's interesting about, I mean, that's, it's sad and obviously we need to improve our, our efforts, but one of the things that I heard repeatedly from a lot of our detractors in East Oakland about slow streets was that, well, obviously they're like, this isn't really meeting our needs. We'd like to try these other issues. The fact that we kept coming back and trying different things represented a a successful rollout despite the the project itself for the pilot being unsuccessful right like because our assumption has been oh well we've never failed before it's only now that we're failing because we're trying all these new things When it's like no there are a bunch of very very expensive projects that are very much in the ground concrete wise that are also failures for a lot of people Whereas if someone tells me, oh, I don't like your A-frame barricade in the street, I'm like, great, pick it up, put it to the side, right? Whereas I can't rip out $10 million worth of concrete tomorrow.
3: Yeah. And And that to me is really important. Yeah. And and doing nothing is a failure as well, right? Like... You know, we can um, do these really big things really slowly and do a few of them, or we can do a bunch of, a bunch of things across the city. And c- with the quick implementation, we can, you know, it'll, we'll be doing some things that fail, but we'll be doing a lot more things and addressing a lot more issues. And um,
1: yeah, it's a, it's a new way to do business. Yeah. yeah. Question, if Warner, if you've got a couple more minutes, um, this is. I mean, we're really in a in a in a fascinating age of experimenting. Cities across the world are trying things rapid, in rapid succession. Some are working, some aren't. I, I really look at it as a grand experiment on a global scale that we've never seen. How do cities learn from each other? What what's the process, or is there a process by which Vancouver can learn from Oakland and the other way around? Are we just looking up articles on the internet, or do cities talk to each other? How do how do we learn? I would say, yes, cities talk to each other, first, first and foremost. Fortunately,
2: there are not that many city planners out there. Like, a lot of us know each other. And so, you know, when we launched Slow Streets, I got a lot of text messages from colleagues across the country saying, hey, did you guys really do that? Like, wait, hold on. Like, t- explain to me what that, what's the secret sauce there, right? For example, you know, people said, I don't believe you, like 74 miles is a lot. I'm like, well, first of all, only the network is eligible. We haven't closed all those streets. Second, we're actually not closing the streets. This is something very fundamental about Oakland slow streets that is different from other major cities, not that Oakland's a major city, but other cities across the country, right? Our streets are open to neighborhood traffic. They are closed to through traffic. And that is, turn a phrase, that is actually kind of important and it is a legal distinction that makes our program uh, work better because if I just shut streets off, people would like, you know, burn the town down <laughs> and that's not good, right? Uh, from I'm, I'm confident that pe- that cities learn from each other in part through conversations like this, just exposing one another and, and being humble about where we've failed, right? And and what we're struggling with is really at least they're right, and at best an opportunity for us to learn in advance of our own mistakes, learn from other people's mistakes as well. Um, Whether that's on Twitter, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's a series of text messages on my cell phone. I think that we're all having this conversation in bits and pieces and, you know, we're all hopefully getting to a center, you know, tapping our canes around a little bit to get there.
1: Paul, do you want to comment on that?
3: Yeah, definitely. We have a lot of um, good connections with other cities, and um, yeah, we we've learned so much from other places. And hopefully, some places are seeing some of the things we're doing and and learning from our both our successes and failures. Um, so yeah, it's um, it's been uh, it's been a, a it's been a pretty incredible experience. I think just. Um, trying things out and, and looking at other cities and being in this, in this world where everyone's moving so fast and you know, you're checking out some other city, but you're probably checking out something that they did a month ago and, and uh, but again, I think the tapping around and all kind of converging on some, some real things that can make our, our residents' lives better is, um, is, is great and we're all, we're all learning a lot. Perfect. There's also of competition
2: too, right? Like, you know, our network was 74 miles and New York's was 75 and somebody did a hundred and it was like, okay, first of all, this is not like the price is right over here. But, you know, I think that cities need a little bit of courage, right? Like this courage to fail, but that no city ever wants to be the first, but we definitely don't want to be left out of the party either. And so to some degree, I think that not only having these conversations, but when one goes, then other cities wanna try new things too. And we all point to each other and say, well, I got that idea from them, so blame them. <laughs> so it's um, it's gonna be interesting to see in the coming months, like if, if as we turn to phase two or phase three of our respective programs that you start to see either that we are coming to a center that things start to look the same, or if a number of cities start to break, say we're gonna try an altogether different move and see if other cities trend towards us or if there are some respective camps that we all are going to fall into I can't wait
0: That was Warren Logan Policy, Director of Mobility and Interagency Relations at Oakland's Mayor's Office. Want to give a shout out for the great work Warren and the City of Oakland is doing? Support Cycles of Change an organization that Warren endorses Cycles of Change is a bicycle education program that believes in a holistic framework of transportation justice at the urgent intersection of movements for radical, gender, economic, environmental, and disability justice. Thank you to Paul Storer, Director of Transportation, City of Vancouver, and our creator, moderator, and host, Chris Volan. I'd also like to thank Rossich Hemphill Architects, our City Talks sponsor. And thank you for listening to Episode 3 of City Talks. For the visual experience of this conversation, go to urbanarium.org. Subscribe to Urbanarium City Talks. We'll be making more.